Welcome to Candid Catholic Convos, a program brought to you by the Catholic Diocese of Harrisburg. Our mission is to humanize the church and help you to grow in your faith, love, and understanding. I'm your host, Rachel Trochet, a cradle Catholic who's only human and struggled with faith on more than one occasion. Each week, you'll hear engaging, down-to-earth interviews and actionable strategies you can implement into your life with ease to help you grow closer to God. If you're ready to open your heart and step fully into the person God created you to be, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Candid Catholic Convos. Here we are. Spring is finally making itself known. The days are brighter and getting increasingly longer. The temperature is trying to warm up, and we are more than halfway through Lent. Easter is right around the corner. Last year, this holiday snuck up on me entirely. There's usually a bunch of memes on the internet about last-minute holiday shoppers scrambling to throw together a basket for their kids, and all of them were about me. Legitimately. I grabbed what was left on the aisle and tried to hodgepodge three baskets together for my kids. It was a mess. But not for them. They loved everything about them. This year, I'd like to be a little more intentional about the meaning of the holiday, especially because my oldest son has started asking questions. Mom, if it's about Jesus, why is there an Easter bunny? What's with the eggs? Why can't I eat all the chocolate at once? To be honest, I wasn't sure how to answer some of these. I've inferred for years, but I've never actually taken the time to research. So today, I'm sharing with you my findings, as well as some family-friendly activities and basket stuffer ideas. So let's start with Easter itself and how it's now popular to claim Easter is a pagan holiday. Yes, we're going there. And I want to apologize ahead of time for my butchering of some of these words you're about to hear. This theory is based on a passage from the Venerable St. Bede, claiming Northern European Christians adopted the name Easter from the name of the pagan goddess Esther, in Anglo-Saxon, or Esoter, in Northumbrian. If those don't ring a bell, she's also mentioned in the Old Testament as Ashtora, the one for whom poles were erected as signs of fertility in Isaiah chapter 17, verse 8, Jeremiah 17, verse 2, and Micah chapter 5, verse 14. Diving deeper, the name Esther, or Astart, or esoter, comes from the Proto-Indo-European root, os or es, a-u-s or e-a-s, meaning to shine and the east, since the sun shines from the east. Our word east is a derivative of this root. Interestingly enough, the Catholic Church does not formally call the feast Easter, but rather Pascha, 
which is derived from the Aramaic word for Passover, hence why Jesus is the Paschal sacrifice. Only English and Germanic lands use the term related to Easter. This etymology connects the word Christ rising, like the sun, from the dead. Author Dr. Taylor Marshall offers another explanation which is even more interesting and which I find to be more probable. The Anglo-Saxon called the spring equinox esoter, which is an astronomical description. Since pagans ceremoniously celebrate astronomical events as holy days, the natural phenomenon of the spring equinox as a shining, and the religious feast for the goddess of fertility and light, Ashtora, were indistinguishable. He goes on to say Anglo-Saxons didn't borrow the name of a goddess for the feast of Christ's resurrection. They simply denoted it by the name of the natural phenomenon, the spring equinox, which they called esoter, since the festival is calculated by marking the spring equinox. It just so happens that the name of the goddess and the name of the feast are connected in their entomology, confirming the exact context of Beattie's words, which were Esoter month, which is now interpreted as the Paschal month, was formerly named after the goddess Esoter and has given its name to the festival. So what does that mean? All it means is that the old day names remained, but without their religious context. For example, we still say Thursday, even though we no longer think of it as Thor's day. Likewise, the name Easter for the spring equinox, the name remained, but the goddess did not. Got it? Good. Now let's talk about that bunny business. Easter baskets and the Easter bunny were actually brought to America in the 18th century by German immigrants who settled right here in Pennsylvania. They brought the idea of an egg-delivering hare called Osterhase with them, along with the idea that children should prepare nests for the bunny to leave brightly colored eggs on Easter. Eventually, the nests were replaced with Easter baskets, which were also tied to another ancient tradition. To this day, Easter is typically celebrated with a large meal marking the end of Lent. Traditionally, on Holy Saturday, this meal was brought to the Easter Vigil Mass in a large basket to be blessed. This act actually predates Christianity, with early farmers using the spring equinox, a time when day and night are of equal length, and when winter ends and the spring with its renewal and new life begins, as a time of prayer and blessing. Ancient Hebrews, Arabs, Assyrians, and Babylonians celebrated the first seedlings of spring by bringing them in baskets to temples to pray for a good year of crops. Easter maintains its connection to these ancient rituals, by being the Sunday after the first full moon following the spring equinox. Today, Easter is second only to Halloween in terms of U.S. candy sales, 
and it is the fourth most popular day for sending greeting cards behind Christmas, Valentine's Day, and Mother's Day. Among the most popular sweet treats associated with this day are chocolate eggs, which date back to early 19th century Europe. Eggs have long been associated with Easter as a symbol of new life and Jesus's resurrection. Decorating eggs for Easter is a tradition that dates back to at least the 13th century, according to some sources. One explanation for this custom is that eggs were formerly a forbidden food during the Lenten season, so people would paint and decorate them to mark the end of the period of penance and fasting, and then eat them on Easter as a celebration. Another egg-shaped candy, the jelly bean, became associated with Easter in the 1930s, although their origins reportedly date all the way back to a biblical-era concoction called a Turkish delight. According to the National Confectioners Association, over 16 billion jelly beans are made in the U.S. each year for Easter. That's enough to fill a giant egg measuring 89 feet high and 60 feet wide. If you're looking to keep the tradition of Easter baskets and the Easter bunny alive, but you aren't game for all the cavity-causing concoctions or want to keep it more Christ-centered, then you're in luck because I have a bunch of ideas for you. To start, you don't have to break the bank. Dollar stores have a plethora of chocolate crosses, religious breath mint tins, religious children's books, flowers, and more for a reasonable price. They often have religious stickers too, so be sure to check the school supply and craft stuff aisles and not just the Easter aisles. Hobby Lobby also has an array of chocolate crosses, lots of children's Bibles, and Easter picture books, resurrection sets, bracelets, and plastic eggs, but in the shape of crosses. They also have baking supplies and kid craft kits with religious Easter themes. Children's books and Bibles are wonderful for baskets, and they make great keepsakes. There's at least one for every age group, like the Beginner's Bible for little and early readers, or the Action Bible, which is a comic book style for older kids, or even journaling Bibles for teens. There's also other religious books like Catholic Saints for Children, Stories of the Blessed Sacrament, and My Little Catechism. Some other ideas for basket stuffers include rosaries, prayer cards, prayer books, crucifixes or crosses for their bedroom, saint books, saint medals, religious jewelry, Catholic t-shirts, be Yourself Journals, Mysteries of the Rosary Adult and Teen Coloring Book, UCAT, which is a youth catechism, and you can find it online, a rosary craft kit where you can make your own rosary, stickers, Saint Charms, Our Lady's Garden Coloring Book, Catholic Family Crate, a subscription for the Mass Box, or Magnificid, and this helps kids 6 to 12 years old follow along at Mass. 
Some of my best Easter memories are of egg hunts and big family dinners. But the Easter season lasts for 50 days until Pentecost. So if you're looking for activities for your kids leading up to the actual celebration of Easter and during the Easter season, I have a lot of really great ideas for you to try. To start, you can make cross crafts. There's an unlimited amount of colorful and fun ideas for this. Just do a quick internet search to get some ideas. You can also make empty tomb crafts. These are fun and totally Easter-centered. They're also really easy to make. They mostly involve supplies you probably already have around your house at Easter time anyway. You can learn about the jelly bean prayer and print your own to attach to bags for baskets. This is a great way to attach the candy concoction to Christ by assigning the colors to the events of Easter. The poem I'm about to read you is by Lacey Lynch. White is for the bread they broke before the sad event. Black is for the dark night in the garden where Jesus went. Orange is for the sunrise on the day of his arrest. Purple for the robe he wore, a king they called in jest. Red is for the blood he spilled, which was for me and you. Pink is for his mother, whose heart broke into two. The grass outside the tomb was green when Magdalene arrived, and yellow is for her shock to find out Jesus was alive. Another fun thing you can do is learn about lambs as an Easter symbol and make a lamb craft. Again, tons of great ideas for this online. Given that butterflies are a symbol of the resurrection, like Christ rose from the tomb, the caterpillar emerges from the cocoon, you can raise and release butterflies during the Easter season. Remember, you have 50 days until Pentecost. Make a bunny craft. Bunnies are a symbol of new life because they have offspring in abundance. Because the stone was rolled away from the entrance of the tomb on Easter, do some stone paintings to keep this in mind. Kids love painting rocks. Eat fish for dinner or make goldfish cracker treats for casting your nets. The risen Jesus eats fish with the disciples on the shores of Tiberias. You can read John chapters 21 verse 1 through 14 to your kids while you eat. Learn about chicks as an Easter symbol as well. They're a sign of new life that pops out from an egg. So you can do a fun Easter chick craft, or you can eat peeps. Go on a walk. The disciples meet risen Jesus on the road to Emmaus. At some point during the walk, you can take a break and read the story from the Bible to your kids. You can find it in Luke chapter 24, verse 13 through 35. You can also learn the story about doubting Thomas needing to feel the nail holes in Jesus' hands. Then you can eat any food with a hole in it, like a donut. Flowers are often a symbol of Easter. New life comes from seeds beneath the ground. Also, you can use this to celebrate St. Teresa's canonization day, which is May 17th, and her nickname was Little Flower. You can do this by making a flower craft. Or... Put white carnations or other white flowers into water with food coloring and watch them turn colors as they absorb the color over several days. Or you can press some small flowers into a book. 
And Easter lilies are a classic Easter symbol. So make some handprint lilies for a fun learning activity. You can also read about the Good Shepherd and make Good Shepherd crafts using free online printables and old toilet paper rolls. Read your favorite Easter picture books. If you don't have any, you can start a small collection by placing them in Easter baskets. Plan a garden. It could be a merry garden or new bulbs, some flowers, whatever you'd like. You can also bake Easter sugar cookies. If you're like me and not up for feeding the mess in your kitchen, get some pre-made ones for decorating or get the slice and bake ones. Kids love any of these choices, so don't feel like you have to overdo it. Did you know the peacock is an ancient symbol of Easter? Peacocks were originally believed to be incorrupt because their feathers stayed beautiful even after their death, and therefore they became a symbol for Christ. So why not try making a peacock craft in celebration? Going back to the jelly beans, you can also keep a jar of jelly beans in your kitchen, perhaps like a good deed jar, and reward your kids for jelly beans when they do chores, when they're being kind, taking initiative, or just because. You spent Lent making sacrifices and fasting, so now go celebrate during Easter. You can also bake resurrection rolls with your kids. These are so easy to make if you use the canned crescent rolls you buy at the store. And they're really comparable to cinnamon rolls for breakfast. You can make a resurrection garden. All you need are a large plant saucer, a small terracotta pot for the tomb, or you can turn a plastic cup or a tin on its side, a flat rock about the size of your tomb, some dirt and small rocks, some plants or small flowers in a pot, sticks for making crosses, a hot glue gun, and some moss. Again, lots of really great ideas for this online, and you don't have to go overboard. As with all of my lists, this is by no means exhaustive, and it's not meant to overwhelm you this Easter season. They're to help light your creative spark, and give you some ideas not just for the Easter holiday itself, but for the whole Easter season leading up to Pentecost. I hope this resonated with you, and I can't wait for you to share with us how you celebrated Easter on our Facebook page. And if crafts aren't your thing, but spring cleaning is, then listen to this special message about the power of confession from Father Tim Saad of Seven Sorrows Parish. For me, confession has always been growing up, it was something we did. You obviously know you have to confess your sins. And we know that if you have mortal sins, you have to go to confession to have those mortal sins, those serious sins, cleaned off of you. But venial sins, those smaller sins, can be wiped away at Holy Communion. So I kind of knew this growing up. You know, I went to Catholic school for 16 years, including college. So I knew that. But after... After, I think, very early part of high school, I stopped going to confession because I thought, well, what's, what's the point? I don't want to go tell my sins to somebody else. I'm embarrassed by my sins, particularly a couple that I was like, I'm not going to tell anybody. I don't want my parish priest to know these things or whatever. 
So I stopped going. I didn't go for 18 years after that. Yeah, I went to mass, of course, but I, I just didn't go to confession. Didn't see a need. God forgives me. I'll ask for forgiveness and God will forgive me. But a priest at, at, at a church I was going to in, in Virginia kept every week, it was Lent, and he just kept pounding, go to confession. You'll, you'll not regret it. Go to confession. You need to feel God's mercy and his love. And before, I had a very mechanical understanding of what confession was. Okay, I go, I get my mortal sins cleared off. I get my venial sins cleared off. And I knew that. I need, knew I needed to do that. But I thought, well, okay, I'll just say, say a prayer and God will heal me. That was a very mechanical understanding. But when the priest was talking about it, feeling his mercy and his love, feeling forgiven, that began to resonate with me because I remember saying my prayers and saying, God, forgive me for this and for that. But I didn't feel forgiven. And, but the priest kept saying, you need to go so that you can feel his mercy and his love. And he kept hounding this week after week after week. He kept pointing to this confession service that they were going to have at the end of Lent and that we all needed to go. And I was like, well, no, I'm not going to go. But I understand what he's saying. No, I'm not going to go. But then I decided I was going to go. And boy, I was so nervous. I was so nervous. I remember standing there in line shaking. There were so many people there. And I just remember thinking, if this takes five more minutes, I'm going to get out of here. But I stuck with it. And thank God I did because I felt his mercy and his love through that sacrament that I hadn't felt in 18 years and probably my whole life. To me, this sacrament, to me, this sacrament shows his mercy and his love in a more real way than any other sacrament we have. And in any other interaction we have with God, this sacrament does it for me. To be able to go and to feel it, that changed my life. And I'm so grateful for that priest for hounding it. So I keep hounding it just because I know people, not because I'm trying to cast people down to live, to like be reminded of their sins, but to, be, to know that we have sin, sin damages us, not because the church says it does, but because it does real harm in us. And then to be free of that, to not have to carry that around, I mean, we're not meant to carry it around. He wants to forgive us. So take advantage of that and feel freedom from sin. I never felt forgiven, even though I prayed to God and asked him to forgive me for my sins. I needed to hear it. I needed to have, uh, it's hard to go into a confessional and talk to a, to a priest, talk to Jesus through a priest. But you know, when you go in there, you feel so nervous. I still feel nervous. I go to confession every two weeks. I still feel nervous because I'm really carrying something in. And then when I leave, I really feel like a weight is lifted off. I think many people who go to confession feel that way. It's because you were, we were really taking something into that confessional and we're really like leaving without it. That's a real thing. That doesn't happen when we're just, hey, God, forgive me for my sin. I don't have that same feeling of relief. It's that interaction with God that we have in the sacrament is why we need to go. We need to feel his mercy and feel the power of that being lifted off of us. And the sacrament does that in a way that a private prayer can't do. To hear those words, I absolve you from your sins, that's not something we get in a private prayer. To know that it has been lifted off. To feel it, to feel the freedom from it, that's why we have the sacrament. If someone had, comes to confession and has the the courage to confess something that is so weighty that has weighed them down for years maybe, 
I have nothing but respect for that person. And uh, they give me an example of what it means to have trust in God. That, okay, I'm gonna, I have this thing and it's not, it's not good and it's hard to say, but I'm going to confess it. To me, I, it's, that's, I just have honor for that person because they show so much courage. And to be perfectly honest, and I know this is going to sound like a cop-out, but I don't remember what people confess. And I would think if you ask most priests, and my talks with them, I, I, I think if you ask most priests, I think they'll tell you the same thing. They just don't remember the sins. And I think that is the that shows the beauty of this sacrament because it tells us what truly is happening. When God abolishes sin in that confessional, he's not just abolishing it in eternity, which he is, and in his mind, which he is, but he's abolishing it even in ours. If you haven't been to confession in a long time, don't worry that you don't have the process down. That is such a mind, that is not even an issue. A priest will help you. There is a definite order to the sacrament. But there is not an order that you have to know going in. The priest will just ask you questions, he'll prompt you. How long has it been since your last confession? And then don't be embarrassed to say how long it's been. The priest isn't going to look at you. The priest, I, every time someone says a long period of time, 40 years, I'm just in awe that that person still has the trust in God to come back to him. Don't be embarrassed by the time. Be honest, be truthful. It's not meant to like make you feel guilty for not being there that long. It's to get an idea that the priest can get an idea of how long it's been so that when he gives you counsel or whatever, he can help you along the way. But then you just go and lift sins. And there's no reason to like get into huge detail with your sins. You don't need to get, God knows the details. He also knows the sins, but you need to get them out of you. That's the only purpose of that. That's you're giving them up. You don't need to get into the whole backstory. You don't need to, the priest doesn't need to know. Like he's not writing a book. Like there's no, like he, he doesn't need the details. Just get the sins out, period. The, the sin, the type of sin, how, how many times about. That's all that's necessary for the sacrament. The, the sacrament of confession, even if it's been a long time, shouldn't take a long time. It doesn't need to take a long time. Sins, number of times, and then the priest will give you a penance, doesn't have to be a major, it probably won't be a major penance either, even if it's been a long time. And then uh, and then you say the act of contrition, the priest will give you absolution, and that's it. For more info on when your parish is hosting Lenten penance services, visit catholicwitness.org to search for parishes throughout the diocese. Thank you so much for listening. Our goal at the Diocese of Harrisburg is to walk with you on your faith journey. So if this episode resonated with you in any way, the easiest way to show your appreciation is by sharing this program with your network or by leaving a review on your listening platform. You can also support us financially by making a donation online at hbgdiocese.org slash D-A-C and clicking the Make a Donation button. Thanks again, and we'll see you at church on Sunday.